0: The Lord be with you. with your spirit. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Glory to you, o Lord. Chapter 10, verses 26 through 33. Jesus said to the 12, Fear no one. Nothing is concealed that will not be revealed, nor secret that will not be known. What I say to you in the darkness, speak in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the rooftops. And do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. Are not two sparrows sold for a small coin? Yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's knowledge. Even all the hairs on your head are counted. So do not be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Everyone who acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge before my heavenly father. But whoever denies me before others... I will deny before my Heavenly Father the gospel of the Lord. So I've been reading this book that's been making a really kind of a big impact on me. Um, It's by a Protestant pastor who, um, the first thing I noted was he shared the story about how in 1994 he uh, had written his first book and his secretary told him that Jim Baker, who at that time was in prison— had contacted him. So if you don't know anything about the story, Jim Baker, back in the day, was kind of the, the biggest televangelist uh, around. He had the biggest following, he had the b- biggest movement of Christianity, you might want to say like in in throughout the 80s. And in the at the end of the 80s, he was accused of uh, mail fraud and wire fraud and, and some other conspiracy type things. And And it turned out he just his, his whole life just tanked. And he was actually convicted uh, of fraud and sentenced to 45 years in prison. So he went from being like the biggest Christian televangelist in the world to being a prisoner so this was 1994 so he had 45 years he only had to serve five years of those five of those years and anyways he calls this man this pastor and says um, basically I'd like to, you to come visit me in prison so he's four years into a five-year sentence and he says great sure I'll come by and he, and he came and he started visiting with Jim Baker and he said among other things Jim Baker had said that him being in prison wasn't God's judgment on him he said my being in prison was God's mercy on me because I was living a life Apart from his law, I was living my life apart from what he had told, what I knew to be true. I was not living what he, I knew to be true. And this was God's mercy on my life. If he hadn't done this, I would have gone to hell. And so the man who wrote the book, who was visiting him, said. the conversation kept going on, and he said, well, Jim, let me just ask you the question. And all that time, like with all the, uh, the adultery and with all the, 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 the stealing, with all the fraud, with all this stuff, he said he asked the a good question. He said, but you're ministering. He said, when did you fall out of love with Jesus? And that's when this man said that Jim Baker stopped and said something that shook him to the core. Jim Baker looked back at him and said, Ah, I, I never did. He said, but yeah, for seven years you were doing all this, this and this and this, all these sins, all this, all this crime. See, so, you know, for seven years he said, I never fell out of love with Jesus. He said, but what I, what I lost is I lost the fear of the Lord. That was, that was, that was the key. That was it. I never fell out of love with Jesus, but I lost the fear of the Lord. And this, if there's one thing I, I would say that, that we've lost as American Christians, as, American, as, as Catholics in general. We've lost this thing, the fear of the Lord, which if you know anything about scripture, Proverbs chapter one says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And what's wisdom? Just like a race to the end here. What's wisdom? Wisdom isn't just knowing a bunch of stuff. It's not just a bunch of data. It's not just a bunch of knowledge. Wisdom is having a relationship with God. It's knowing who God is. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom that, reminds us who God is. If I don't have fear of the Lord, I will never know who God is. Now, let's back up for a second because I know I'd launched into the idea of talking about the fear of the Lord. And you say, wait, Father, but um, in the gospel today, Jesus says, do not be afraid like three or four times, and you would be right. He says, uh, he says, fear no one. He goes on to say, he says, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but can't kill the soul. At the end, he says, do not don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. But buried in there, Jesus does say, but I shall tell you of whom you should be afraid. In the midst of all these words about, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body but can't kill the soul. Don't be afraid of anyone. Don't be afraid because God loves you. He says, the middle of that, he says, but I shall tell you of the one you should fear. Who's that? He says, the one who can, after killing the body, throw the soul into Gehenna. Body and soul into Gehenna. Now, some people, scripture scholars, uh, some of them would say, well, maybe that's, that's Satan. Maybe that's the one. You'd be afraid of Satan. But most scripture scholars, most Catholic scholars would say that's actually an incorrect interpretation. Who Jesus is referring to, he's not referring to Satan, the one who can cast both body and soul into Gehenna. He's referring to God himself. I shall tell you whom you should fear, God himself. Remember, the first stage of wisdom is fear of the Lord. The first way we can even know who God is is through fear of the Lord. And so we have to ask the question, if I don't—you say, but I'm a Christian. I don't don't have to be afraid of God. You're right. You don't have to be afraid of God. Very different. Fear of the Lord and being afraid of God are two very, very different things we're going to talk about in a second. But we have to realize that we haven't outgrown and we never will outgrow the first stage of wisdom, which is fear of the Lord. And if I've never known that, if I've never known fear of the Lord, I have to ask the question, who, who am I approaching when I approach God? Like if I've, never, if I've never actually known that sense of overwhelming awe, in fact, Scripture talks about a terror If I've never never been even slightly unsettled when I've approached God, I have to ask the question, who do I think I'm approaching when I'm approaching God? Who do I think I'm praying to when I'm praying to God? When it comes to the Mass and I'm approaching even for Holy Communion, if if I've never been overwhelmed by the sense of fear, who do I think I'm receiving? I think too many of us, we have, this, we have our, our nerf version of God, right? It's that, that nerf, you know, the, we don't nerf, right? You have a football, you have a soccer ball, you have any kind of ball or, or whatever the, the toy is. If you've nerfed it, you just make it softer. You just make it so, it, oh, if it hits you in the face, it's not going to hurt. If, if you don't catch it, no big deal. It's going to bounce. I think we've nerfed God. I think we've, we've taken God who is a grizzly bear and we've turned him into a teddy bear. Here's God who we, could, we wouldn't dare approach. And we've made him into a toy. I mean, all throughout Scripture, I mean, every, virtually every time someone actually encounters the true and living God, they're overwhelmed by fear. I mean, go back to, uh, to the Exodus, where here's the people of Israel. God reveals himself to them in chapter 19, and it's called the Great Theophany. Basically, he sets them free from slavery, right? Ten plagues, bam, 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 one after the other. He leads them through the Red Sea, and he gets, they get to Mount Sinai. He <laughs> describes like this. Moses describes it like this. He says, on the moment of, mo- morning of the third day, there are peals of thunder and lightning and heavy cloud over the mountain very loud trumpet blast, and all the people in the camp trembled. But Moses led the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stationed themselves at the foot of the mountain. And Mount Sinai was all wrapped in smoke, for the Lord had come down upon it in fire. The smoke rose from it as from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. Moses spoke to God, and God answered him with thunder. And then what happens in the next chapter is when the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, it said, And the trumpet blast and the mountain smoking, they all feared and trembled. They took a position much further away and they said to Moses, you speak to God for us and we'll listen, but don't let God speak directly to us. They had encountered in some small, small way, the reality of God. And they're like, we can't, Moses, we'll just go through you from now on. Because they didn't encounter a nerf version of God. They encountered the real God. In fact, all throughout scripture. In fact, uh, you have you have heard from Jeremiah today. Jeremiah talks about this. Isaiah talks about this in Isaiah chapter chapter 6. When he's called to be a prophet, what happens is he says, in the year King Uzziah died, this is Isaiah chapter so chapter 6. It says, I saw the Lord seated on a lofty high and high throne, trained with his garment, filling the temple. Seraphim are flying all around him. And they all cried out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. All the earth is filled with this glory. And at the sound of that cry, the frame of the door shook, and the house was filled with smoke. And then I said, Woe is me, I am doomed. Because I'm a man of unclean lips, living among a people of unclean lips, and I fell down to the ground as though I was dead. This is not a nerf version of God. This is the true and living God. And this is the 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 proper response to the real God is fear. The proper response to Thee, true God, is awe. It's actually to tremble. It, it's it's to recognize, I am not God. You are God. To say you are God and I'm not. You know, after after at the end of the book of Job, and Job is someone. Job is someone who could be defiant against the Lord, right? Because a lot of terrible things, horrible things happened to Job. But at the end of the, uh, in the book of the book of Job, when God reveals Himself to Job, and this is Job chapter forty-two, God reveals Himself. And Job responds by saying, I've dealt with things that I do not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I cannot know. I heard of you by word of mouth, but now my eye has seen you. Therefore, I disown what I said and I repent in dust and ashes. In fear, fear is the proper response to the true and living God. And I realize what happens right now. People would say, okay, Father, that's fine. That's the Old Testament God. We're not, we're not talking about him. We're talking about the New Testament God. We're here as Christians, so let's talk New Testament. I say, yeah, let's talk New Testament. How about, how about the moment when Jesus goes up the mountain with Peter, James, and John? He's transfigured and he reveals his glory. What happens there? Well, they all fall down to the ground as though dead. They all fall down to the ground terrified when they hear the voice from heaven. So that there's that. Oh, even, even better. John. John, who has seen—remember John the Beloved—who has seen Jesus transfigured on Mount Tabor. He has— rested his head against Christ's chest on the night of the Last Supper. He stayed with Jesus faithfully all the way through the crucifixion. Here is John the Beloved who was so close to Jesus, you might even say his very best friend, that in the very first chapter of the book of Revelation, says, I, John, John is now 90 years old, so this is an entire life, not only of knowing Jesus intimately for, for three years as his closest friend, but then also serving Jesus for the next 60 years or however, even maybe even more, as Jesus' is apostle to the world. And it says on, he was on the island of Patmos. He says it was on the Lord's Day. He's returning from offering Mass. And he heard a voice behind him and he turned around and he saw Jesus. And he said, when I saw him, I fell to the ground as though I was dead. He would have stayed there. Except Jesus stretched out his hand, touched him, and said, Get up. See, this is, this is the, the reality. When we're not dealing, when we're not dealing with the nerf version of God, when we're dealing with the real God, the response is very, very different. In fact, it's not just like, Well, that was Mount Sinai, remember, with all the smoke and all the fire and all the, all the, all the, the peals, of, peals of thunder. In the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 12, this is this kind of the last one here. Letter to the Hebrews, chapter 12. What he writes, he's writing to Christians and he says, you have not approached that which could be touched in a blazing fire and gloomy darkness and storm and a trumpet blast and a voice speaking words such as those who heard beg that no message further be addressed to them. He's referring to the book of Exodus. He says, you haven't approached that. You've approached not less, you've approached more. God is not less awesome in the New Testament. God is more awesome in the New Testament. God is not less frightening in the New Testament. God is more frightening. Because in the Old Testament, it was a it was a sign. In the Old Testament, it was a in the Old Testament, it was angels speaking. In the New Testament, this is God himself who has spoken. In the New Testament, we're actually, when we approach the altar, we're approaching God himself, not an image of God, not a figure of God, not an not idea of God. We're approaching God himself. That's why the author goes on to say, he says, once more, here's, listen to this. Therefore, we who are receiving an uns- the unshakable kingdom should have gratitude with which we should offer worship pleasing to God in reverence and in fear for our God is a consuming fire. We're not approaching a God who's less. Jesus doesn't reveal that he's less. He reveals even more. Our God is a consuming fire. He is not a teddy bear. He's a grizzly bear, or maybe you'd say in the words of, of uh, C.S. Lewis, if you know, if you're familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia. In Narnia, there is the character Aslan, and Aslan is the lion, and Aslan is the figure of Jesus in in Narnia. And at one point in the very first book, when the kids get to Narnia, and they're talking to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and Lucy is the youngest daughter. And she asks Mrs. Beaver, she says, well, is Aslan, who we're going to meet, is Aslan quite safe? She says, I should feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And Mrs. Beaver responds, she says, "She says that you will, dearie, and make no mistake. She says, I feel rather nervous. Yeah, you will, and make no mistake. She says, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just plain silly. Then Lucy says, then he isn't safe? And Mrs. Beaver responds by, Mr. Beaver responds by saying, safe? Oh, don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He is the king, I tell you. Like this is, this is the, this is the, I mean, in some ways the secret, right? This is, in so many ways is, is the revelation of Jesus. It's that we approach the real God. He, actually, even more, the real God approaches us and how we respond to him as he approaches us tells us everything we need to know about where our heart is. Am I playing with God, with a nerf version of God? Am I snuggling with my teddy bear God? Do I have a safe God or do I have a God who is not safe, but he's good? You know, and think about, and I'm guilty of this in so many ways. I mean, even when it comes to scripture, I remember it was my last year in seminary, just, I mean, probably a month before I got ordained, maybe even less than a month before I got ordained, and I went in for a final in scripture. And it was a sit-down kind of oral final with me and the professor. And he wasn't like a a super strict kind of a person. He was pretty fast and loose when it came to a lot of things. But at one point, he asked me a question about the Bible. And I said, oh, yeah, that's the part in the Bible where uh, Jesus says, um, and I made the quote, and I said, you know, yada, yada, yada. I, I didn't finish the quote. I just said, you know, Jesus said, blessed are the poor, yada, 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 something like that. And he stopped me and he said, whoa, whoa, whoa. We're talking about the Word of God here not yada, 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 (laughs) especially coming from this guy who, you know, he didn't necessarily come across as someone who loved scripture, just studied it a lot. But yeah, blessed are the poor, yada, yada, yada. No, 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 no. This is the word of God. We don't yada, 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 the word of God. Same thing, I just was able to travel to Israel relatively recently and you know, we could all go to, go to all these holy sites and one of, the, one of the things you want to do is you just want to like enter into like the Church of the Holy Sepulchre where you walk in and up, right up here to your right is where Jesus himself, Jesus, that's where Jesus died. And right over here to your left is that's where Jesus rose from the dead. And you want to walk in you just want to treat every stone that's there, even though the stones aren't go, don't go all the way back to Jesus that you can touch, they're underneath those stones, the ones you can, that where Jesus actually touched. You just want to walk in and just don't want to keep your hands to yourself because it's, I can't touch any of this. And yet, walk into the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is maybe the holiest place in the world or where at least the holiest things, most powerful things in the world have ever happened. And it's like a zoo in there. You just think, oh, do we have a sense of what happened here? Like, do we have any idea of what happened here? Same thing is true when it comes to the Mass, that we can walk into here, into this little chapel, garage chapel, or into your local church and just, do I have any, when I look at the, when we look at the altar, when we look at even the tabernacle, here's Jesus present, do we ever stop and think, Okay, what happens at that altar? What happens at that altar is the representation of the great sacrifice of Calvary. That's what happens here every single day when it comes to even the tabernacle. Do I realize who is in there? Is it my nerf version of Jesus or is it the real Jesus? Is it my teddy bear or is it the grizzly bear? Even when it comes to the the name of Jesus, how do I say the name of Jesus? You know, um, in the catechism, there is, is a section that talks about the commandment not to take the Lord's name in vain. It offers a quote from Cardinal Newman about just the way in which we ought to, the way in which we have to reverence the name of Jesus. And it's so powerful because he says, he says, okay, when it comes to feelings of awe or fear, fear of the Lord, they are a class of feelings that we should have. In fact, he says, yes, and have an intense degree if we literally had sight of the Almighty God. I mean, think about those feelings of fear and awe. He says, the are feelings we, we should have if we literally had sight of the Almighty God. Therefore, he goes on to say, They are of the class of feelings which we shall have if we realize his presence. So I don't have to imagine that if I stood before the Lord God himself, if Jesus walked into this room, that I would fall to the ground as if I was dead. But here's the question. That's the feeling I should have if he walked into this room. But that means it's also the feelings that I shall have if I realized he is in this room right now, that we could not utter the name Jesus without taking our lives into our hands. And if I truly believed that, then I would have to realize that every time I uttered the name Jesus, I'm taking my life in my hands. And so every time I heard his name on a TV show or in a movie or being taken carelessly, taking my life in my hands. He goes on to say, these are the classic feelings we shall have if we realize his presence. In proportion, as we believe that he is present, we shall have them. And not to have them is not to realize or not to believe that he is present. Think. Of, let's go back to this. To not feel fear and awe in the, in the presence of the Lord's name, the presence of the Lord in the Eucharist, and the Mass. To not feel an awe is not to realize or not to believe that he actually is present. If I don't experience this, then I, I might, maybe i the God I'm approaching, who am I really approaching? I'm probably approaching the nerf version of God. I'm either unaware or I'm indifferent. I'm unaware or I'm indifferent. I don't realize who God is, or I don't realize where God is. And that's, of course, the common temptation. It goes back to the Old Testament. It talks about those people who are not afraid, it talks about those people who do whatever they want. And what they say, they say, He hides His face, He doesn't see. He's not here. And yet, what did Jesus say in the gospel today? There is nothing hidden that won't be revealed. There's nothing concealed that will not be uncovered. There's nothing secret that will not be known. You know, I, I said that one of the reasons we don't have the fear of God, the awe of the Lord, is because we can be indifferent to him. But I think sometimes it's maybe because we live as if God is indifferent to us. I think sometimes we live as if, we maybe prefer as if God didn't care about us so much. <laughs> what is, again, what does Jesus say in the scriptures? He says, even the hairs on your head are counted. He says, you're worth more than many sparrows. I think sometimes it would be maybe more appealing to us if we mattered less to God because then he wouldn't notice and I wouldn't have to let him get close because that's the difference between fear of the Lord and being afraid of God. The difference between being the fear of the Lord and being afraid of God is being afraid of God makes me want to hide. I mean, think back to the Garden of Eden, back in Genesis chapter 3. He said that Adam and Eve, they, they failed. And so what happened? They were afraid. And even Adam says this, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. That's not the same thing. Because fear makes us draw back. Being afraid of God makes us draw back. But the fear of the Lord draws us to himself. This is the big difference. I, I'm afraid of the dark. Why? Because it's the unknown. Dangerous can things can happen there. I'm afraid of, of the tyrant because the tyrant, the tyrant is fickle. Who knows what they're going to do next? I'm afraid of the person who doesn't care because... Who knows what they're going to do because they don't care. It's the difference that your church fathers talked about between servile fear and filial fear. Servile fear is I'm afraid of the master who might just beat me. That's not what we have when it comes to God. Filial fear is I have a father who loves me and he cares about me and he wants the best for me and I disappoint him. You know, it's true. We can never make God love us more. We can never make us God love us less, but he can be more or less pleased with us. Have you ever thought about that. God will never love you more. He'll never love you less. But he might not be pleased with me. He might not be pleased with how I'm choosing to live. And I don't want, I don't want to disappoint my father. I fear disappointing my father. That's part of what it is to have fear of the Lord. Not servile fear, not being afraid of God, but knowing how good he is. And he draws us to himself. Going back to, going back to C.S. Lewis and Chronicles of Narnia, another book is, is another young person named Jill. And at one point in the story, Jill is dying of thirst. She's so thirsty. She comes upon a pool and—it's actually her name too, Jill Pool. and she hears this running water in the distance and she finds it. And she finds the lion, Aslan, lying right next to the water, blocking her way. And Aslan looks at her and says, you know, this, this not pet lion, not a Nerf lion, a real, live, terrifying lion who says, if you are thirsty, you may drink. And Jill says, well, I'm dying of thirst. And he says, well, then you may drink. <laughs> And this little girl says, well, may I, she says, could I, would you mind going away while I do? And Aslan just responds by offering a low growl. Jill says, well, do you promise, do you promise not to do anything to me if I come? And Aslan looks at her and says, I make no promise. With fear in her voice, Jill says, well, do you eat little girls? And Aslan says, I have swallowed up girls, boys, women, and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms. So Jill has this fear and she says, well, then I daren't come and drink. Aslan says, well, then you will die of thirst. Lastly, she says, well, dear, I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. And Aslan says, there is no other stream that we actually have to approach. There's no other God. We have to approach the God who actually cares about us, the God who is so real, the God whose love is so fierce that he counted the hairs on our head, whose love is so fierce that we're worth more to him, not only than sparrows, we're worth more to him than his very life. That is a very high bar. And that is the, that's the God we approach. And so, of course, that's going to fill us with fear. But here's the reality. St. Francis de Sales said this. He says, we must fear God out of love, not love God out of fear. That God calls us, yes, to this first stage of wisdom, fear of the Lord. But in the midst of that fear, to approach him. To not stay away, to not stay far back. And this isn't just, as I said, it's not something we outgrow. But it's even for those who are the most advanced among us. St. Thomas Aquinas is the last thing. St. Thomas Thomas Aquinas, you know, he was writing, he's written so much. Uh, He taught the world so much about who God is. And He hadn't yet finished his major work called the Summa Theologica, but at one point he was in prayer and he had a revelation of God. God revealed himself to Thomas in such a way that Thomas stopped writing. He left the Summa unfinished. And to Brother Reginald, who was a secretary and his friend in in the monastery, He said this, he says, the end of my labors has come. He says, all that I've written appears to me as so much straw after the things that have been revealed to me. Because the reality of God is that God is not a teddy bear and God is not a Nerf version of God and God is not a toy lion. As Hebrews says, our God is a consuming fire. A consuming fire who says, you matter to me. A consuming fire who says, I care about you more than you care about yourself, a consuming fire who says, you are worth my very life and my death. So do not hesitate to approach, but with every step, remember, you take every step out of love, but every step towards the Lord we take, we also take in fear because God is real. God is more. God is good. And God is a consuming fire.